Well, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And most years at, uh, during the Advent season, I kind of do a special series. It's not really necessary this year. All of Matthew 1 through 4 is about the first coming of King Jesus. And so it is a naturally built-in Christmas series. And we'll just keep on going with it throughout the Advent season and then into the new year. In ancient Greek literature, the term is prodramas, and it means forerunner. Prodramas is used several times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's used only one time in the Greek New Testament. But the prodramas, a forerunner, this is an ancient concept. It could speak of a scout who's sent in advance of troops going to war. It can speak of a herald or a messenger, somebody proclaiming that a high official or even a king is on his way. It announces his imminent arrival. Genesis chapter 41 uses the term in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of those men who ran ahead of Joseph when he was the prime minister of Egypt. Verse 43 of Genesis 41 describes multiple forerunners calling out to all the people, bow the knee, bow the knee. The prodramas, the forerunner, is lesser in rank than the one he's announcing. And in fact, it's the forerunner's duty to highlight the fact that he is less and the one who's coming is more. And so as we continue examining Matthew 1 through 4 in our first series in Matthew, the first coming of King Jesus, this morning we want to look at a prodramas, the forerunner of the king, and that is, of course, John the Baptist. Now, to be very clear, the term forerunner is never actually used of John the Baptist. But it's so clearly the function that he's filling that traditionally this role has been assigned to him pretty much unanimously in the study of the first coming of Christ throughout the history of the church. And so this morning we're going to survey the importance of the forerunner of the king. To be more precise, it would actually be more accurate to say the forerunners, plural, of the king because there are two of them, not one. But we'll spend most of our time on the first one, but there is a second forerunner. And This forerunner is vitally connected to the first one. We'll get to that at the end. And I think I'd like to just give you our application this morning up front. If I could give you up front what I think is the biggest takeaway from this message, especially during the Christmas season, it's for all of us to be reminded that the Christmas season has, going along with it, a perilous danger to it. There is a danger to the Christmas season. And that is that our cultural celebration, even in the church at times, of the birth of Christ can blind us to the greater spiritual reality that the birth of Christ has been leading to the beginning of his ministry, which leads to the cross, which leads to the resurrection, which leads to the ascension of Christ, which leads to his current ministry as our intercessor, which leads to him standing up from the throne of God and girding up himself to return to earth. It's all connected. And while we love the glory of his birth, the gospels move on from his birth pretty quickly to get to these other issues. And contrary to the non-existent Jesus of the liberal heathen who would make Jesus into the image of their progressive wicked agenda, the, the non-existent Jesus that says, I love and accept everyone regardless of what they do, the coming of Christ to the earth will bring division, it will bring controversy because of his message. And his message was not, I love and accept everyone. No, his message was one of warning. His message was one of tremendous hope, to be certain. But that hope is only possible for those who bend the knee to Christ and who submit to him and worship him and him alone and who believe his message with all of their heart. And in fact, the forerunner, John the Baptist, he'll be preaching the same message in anticipation of Christ making his epic offer of salvation from sin to those who would believe on him. And so while the story of the coming of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is obviously very appropriate at Christmas time, it also serves as a reminder that the coming of Christ 
concerns big, grand themes such as eternity and salvation and division. And in Matthew's Gospel in particular, and in our passage, we see the theme of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Grand, magnificent concepts. And so I'd like to spend most of our time looking at the first forerunner of the king, that is John the Baptist, and we'll divide this into four parts. There's four parts to his, the forerunner's heaven-sent mission. And we'll just do a, a good old-fashioned exegetical outline here. I'm going to give you the four up front, and then we'll go through them slowly. I'm going to look at the forerunner's approach, the forerunner's announcement, the forerunner's approval, and the forerunner's assignment. And so we'll look at John the Baptist's approach, his announcement, his approval, and his assignment. And we'll just use that kind of broad outline to walk through the text verse by verse here. First of all, let's look at the forerunner's approach. How did he approach? Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And we'll stop right there for a moment. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and we say John the Baptizer to make sure nobody thinks that that was his denomination, that John was a Baptist. That's not the case. It's a word that means the one who baptizes. The story of John the Baptist, the forerunner, the herald of Jesus Christ, is so vital to the account of the coming of Christ that the Gospel of Luke, in fact, opens with the account of John. There was an older priest named Zechariah whose wife, Elizabeth, had never been able to have children. And one day, when Zechariah was taking his turn in his priestly duties at the temple, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah in the temple to announce that Elizabeth was going to give birth to a son and he was to be named John. But John was to be set apart. He was to be unique. And in fact, in a very highly unique occurrence, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb And the angel told Zechariah that this little child would grow up to call Israel to repentance. And one of the ways he would do that, he uses the phrase that he would call fathers to turn to their children. To bring families back together. To have a a society that is now turned back to obeying the Lord. The angel told Zechariah, that John was to do what Malachi 4.6 foretold would happen, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, to turn the disobedience of the people to righteousness. And Elizabeth did become pregnant. And in fact, just six months before she became, she became pregnant, six months before, rather, her younger relative Mary from Nazareth would become pregnant with Jesus. So, John the Baptist comes along in the womb of Elizabeth just six months before Jesus comes along in the womb of Mary. And Luke chapter 1 records a wondrous event in which John, even in the womb, is overjoyed at the presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary. And, and, and John leaped in his mother's womb. And, and we often have said that, that he was just so filled with joy to be near the Savior. And, and of course, that's the case. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. We can't possibly fathom what that's like but what is he actually doing here the holy spirit was using john the baptist in the womb to announce the presence of jesus in the womb an amazing story now a lesser amazing part you recall that john's father zechariah had a moment of doubt you remember this the angel told him that elizabeth would bear a son and he doubted that and as a result he was disciplined by being unable to speak during the whole pregnancy but when Zechariah's tongue was loosed after John's birth oh did he ever speak and he revealed just how important John's ministry would be because of the salvation being revealed in Christ and that John would be the very first person to tell Israel that their Christ their Messiah their king had arrived Luke 1, beginning in verse 67, records this glorious loosing of Zechariah's tongue. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Nine months of waiting to say that. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. This is John. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. By the way, John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus his entire life. Did you know that? He was the first to announce the presence of Christ even from the womb. He preceded Jesus in his birth. He preceded Jesus in proclaiming the gospel message even before Jesus did. And he preceded Jesus in death. Matthew 14, when John was beheaded by Herod. Now, to our text, specifically in verse 1, it's important for us to notice that John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He's in the countryside. He's in the outlying regions around Jerusalem. And this is a key piece of information. Because not only does this fulfill Old Testament prophecies, we're going to see in verse 3, but it also sends a very clear message that God is exposing the wicked, false, shallow, fake religiosity of the Jewish leadership. That's going to become more apparent when we get to verse 3. But I'm just telling you in advance that the fact that he's preaching in the wilderness is very, very important theologically. And it says here that he came preaching. The participle verb here, Keruson is the ing form of keruso, and this is important because keruso is not preaching in the sense that American evangelicalism thinks of preaching. American evangelicalism thinks of preaching as sappy, a, a story-filled, simple message with a little moral at the end, where everybody's kind of glad to hear it, but kind of relieved that it's over all at the same time. This is not that sort of preaching. This is preaching in all caps. It's a proclamation. It is a publication of the truth. This is not so much the idea of a, of a well-crafted speech. This is the idea of an announcement of a major event. And of course, the major event is the coming of the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he comes preaching. That's the forerunner's approach. Let's look secondly at the forerunner's announcement. What was he preaching? What was the the content of his message. Verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is absolutely vital to see the continuity between the message that John is preaching and the message that Jesus would shortly be preaching. Turn one page over to Matthew 4, verse 17. What is the message that Jesus will come preaching Matthew 4, verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's identical. It's the same message. The very first word of preaching about Jesus and the very first word of preaching by Jesus is repent. What does repent mean? It means to change your mind. It means to change your loyalty to your sin. It means to change your purpose for living It's a complete change of heart, a complete change of attitude, a complete change of direction. And by the way, this is not an attitude of being sorry for your sin. Being sorry for your sin is not repentance. Being sorry for your sin is the byproduct of repentance because you've changed loyalty. And we have to say this because it's so prevalent today. There's so many today who teach and preach that repentance is not necessary for salvation unto Christ. In fact, they call this works-based salvation and they wrongly represent this view as meaning that a person must do good works in order to be acceptable to God. 
In fact, they would say that believing that Jesus is your Savior is sufficient. That even if nothing in your life whatsoever changes, that momentary intellectual belief or or intellectual assent to the notion of Jesus Christ as Savior, that that's enough. And that you should walk through life in total confidence in your salvation, even though it made zero difference. But the charges of a call to repentance being some sort of works-based salvation, these are baseless. They're, 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 they're silly. And in fact, they ignore the basic root meaning of repentance. It means to change your mind. It means to change your loyalty. In the Old Testament, it means to turn from one thing that is evil to another that is good. And those who say that coming to faith in Christ involves only an intellectual belief in the fact that Christ is a Savior... They would encounter some pretty stiff arguments from people we know. They would encounter a stiff argument from people like the prophet Joel. He wrote the words of God in Joel 2 verse 12. Yet even now declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and wailing. Return is is the Hebrew word that means to turn, to change, to go from this direction to that direction. It's a turning of your heart and your mind that's internal. In fact, God goes on in Joel 2 to say that outward works of looking repentant, looking religious are, are worthless to him. He's after your heart. And he uses the example of, of someone who's religious who would tear their clothes and tear their robes in some sort of outward show of penitence. But he says this in Joel 2.13, tear your heart and not your clothing. Tear your heart, not your garments. Now return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. It's a tearing of the heart. So the prophet Joel would disagree with the notion that there's no change necessary. Those who say that only an intellectual assent to the gospel is necessary would encounter disagreement from people like the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote the words of God. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon to forsake your way as a wicked man it doesn't mean to somehow create sinless perfection in yourself that's a ridiculous and a groundless accusation nobody in the orthodox church that says that you must change your behavior in order to be a Christian No, to forsake your way means to stop loving your ways of sin. Stop being loyal to them. To stop at a heart level loving your your own iniquity. And so you see the message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is completely consistent with God's message to Israel throughout all the centuries. Return, repent, change your loyalty. And John gives the reason that it's time to repent. He uses a connecting conjunction for, his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this has been the subject of much debate. And just by reading that phrase, we just blew the lid off a theological bombshell here. And so let's try to spend a little bit of time on this. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Does it mean that Christ was coming to begin the process of the kingdom coming to the earth and his followers will continue this and bring the kingdom in preparation for Christ's return? Today they're calling that Christian nationalism. Or does it mean that Jesus was offering a purely spiritual kingdom, an invisible kingdom consisting only of spiritual salvation for all who would believe on him? In other words, is this proclamation really only speaking of the church? That the kingdom speaks only of God ruling in the hearts of men. And and of course, that is part of the equation. Or, when he says the kingdom of heaven, does he mean the mediatorial kingdom? A kingdom in which a God-man reigns on the earth as prophesied in the Old Testament was being offered and would ultimately be established at his second coming. That's the only possibility. Is the kingdom given in the Old Testament. Let me give you several reasons. First of all, neither John or Jesus give an alternative explanation of the kingdom. What does this mean? 
It's reasonable to assume then that the kingdom that they're speaking of is the same one that all the Jews they're preaching to already know about from the Old Testament. It has to be the same one. They don't give another option. There's another reason this has to be the the kingdom of Christ on earth. If this is a spiritual kingdom only, why is he preaching only to Israel? Why why does that matter? Why, Why is he preaching only to Jews? He should be preaching to all people at this time. There's a third reason this is the kingdom of the Old Testament. Later evidence shows that the disciples anticipated the future kingdom of Messiah on the earth as prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, they got the timing wrong because they thought it was coming immediately, but their concept was correct. And for example, Matthew 20, verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's the mother of James and John, came to him with her sons, bowing down, making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, like any mother would, I suppose, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, Jimmy and Johnny, may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now, aside from the silliness of that request, what does that reveal? That reveals that James and John believed that the kingdom would be one that is on earth in which Jesus was reigning visibly. Right before his ascension into heaven, the disciples had a question, and it was a burning question. They asked him in Acts 1-6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you were, rest- you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? The verb tense here, they were asking him, means over and over again. They were like little kids. Are you restoring the kingdom now? Are you restoring the kingdom now? Are you restoring the kingdom now? What does this reveal? They believe they believe the kingdom is centered in Israel and they assume that it is with Christ reigning on earth. And they're asking, is it about to happen? So there's no other possible conclusion except that the kingdom of heaven is the mediatorial kingdom promised in the Old Testament in which Messiah, the God-man, would reign here on earth. But that hasn't happened yet. So what does John mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That it's close by? And we open another theological bombshell here. Let me give you four variables to consider about the kingdom of heaven being at hand. And and you have to have kind of a broad understanding of this. The first variable we'll call the package deal variable. The package deal variable tells us that in a very real sense, the kingdom was at hand, it was close, Why? Because the king was there. There's the king. Honestly, it would never be easier to enter the kingdom because you could literally see the king. You could speak to the king. In fact, you could could view previews of the kingdom. You could just, by following Jesus around, you could see him heal thousands of people. You could hear perfect teaching, perfect wisdom, see perfect justice. You could see his power over nature. You could see his power over demons. You could see his power over death. There was never an easier time to believe in Christ than when he was there. The king is bound up with the kingdom. It is a package deal. And if you wanted to be in the kingdom, what did the king say? You must follow me. It's a package deal. So there's the package deal variable. A second variable to consider is what we'll call the divine timing variable. The divine timing variable. It's a mistake to think that every time the Bible says something is imminent or close, that this means automatically it's close from our vantage point, right? When it is close from our vantage point, often Scripture gives specific time references, such as in Daniel 9 and Revelation 12, describing periods of time such as seven years or two sets of three and a half years concerning the tribulation period, which we're not in. But the divine timing variable, we we see this all over the New Testament. Consider this. Paul spoke of the rapture and the resurrection of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, and he spoke of it in terms as if he may be part of it. It's been 2,000 years. Hasn't happened yet. Or think about Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7. He said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He's saying, pray now because Christ can return tomorrow. Or think about Paul in Philippians 4 or 5. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Same Greek word meaning the Lord is at hand. 
In other words, be kind, be holy today because you may be facing Christ in an hour. Jesus himself said in Revelation 22, verse 20, I am coming quickly. It's a Greek word that means soon. It's imminent. And of course, we recall Peter's mini theology on how time works in the economy of God, 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like what? A thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In other words, don't get hung up on human time. So there's the divine timing variable. Here's a third variable we'll call the grammatical variable. The grammatical variable, the verb tense of is at hand, means the kingdom has drawn near, not that the kingdom is, has arrived. There's a big difference. That when Jesus came, the kingdom was, if I could put it this way, in a condition of nearness. It had not arrived though. Now, if Israel had accepted their king, the kingdom would have been inaugurated. But the sovereign plan of God was such that Israel would reject her king, leading him to the cross, leading to the provision of salvation for all who would believe on Christ. Then you have a fourth variable. I'll call this the temporary offer variable. The temporary offer variable. The message of Christ begins, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is as obvious as it gets. Is There's no hidden meaning here. It is to change. It is to turn, change your mind, to turn away from your sin. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's right here because the king is here. But the message of Christ would be amended and modified after Israel officially rejected him in Matthew 12. From that time forward, his speaking of the kingdom is no longer the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His speaking of the kingdom is as if it's far away and it's future. Beginning in Matthew 13, instead of preaching simply repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is direct, blunt, in your face, direct truth, no hidden meanings whatsoever, Jesus began preaching in parables, didn't he? He preached in parables that those who believe on him might have the light of understanding the kingdom and those who refuse to believe would be kept in the dark about the kingdom. And in fact, fast forwarding to the end of Matthew's gospel, far from Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, now he gives long-term, long-range instructions for while he's gone. In fact, gone for an entire age or an entire era or eon. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Speaking of the Holy Spirit's coming, that that Christ, the Spirit will be with us. But this is an age. This is go to all the nations, go to the whole world. We haven't accomplished that yet. Still not done. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was offered up front, but because Israel rejected him, now it is extended out. That's the forerunner's approach and the forerunner's announcement. Let's look at the forerunner's approval. How do we know that John the Baptist is the man chosen by God to be the forerunner? Verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We're going to go back and read that a little bit differently in a moment. You'll see why. Verse 4, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now let me start briefly in verse 4. John's appearance was unusual. To say the least, he's wearing a raggedy camel hair robe and he's wearing a leather belt. Probably just means a big piece of leather string that he tied around to just keep his robe kind of from flying around. And he's out eating locusts and wild honey. That's sort of the chips and dip of the ancient Near East, apparently. He's truly living off the land. Now, part of the message of the uniqueness of of this event that's happening here with John the Baptist is that, that what John is doing is in stark contrast to the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel 
They love to receive attention for their piety and for their outward holiness. They love to wear the tassels that marked them out as holy men of God. They love to show how often they washed their hands. And, and there they are in contrast to John the Baptist as he gets another locust and dips it in honey and crunches that thing. And, and, and these guys are, are totally different than him. And so there's a, a major point of discontinuity that this prophet is nothing like the false leaders of Israel now. But there's also a major point of continuity, which John the Baptist is clearly living out. In fact, turn just a few pages back to the very last prophecy of the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 4. It's probably three pages back in your Bible. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament, the last prophecy of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, beginning in verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. Now, like many prophecies in the Old Testament, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Regarding the near fulfillment, you even recognized verse 6 as being part of the message the angel gave to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. Luke 1, 16 and 17, this is the angel speaking to Zechariah. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus himself affirmed that John the Baptist is this coming of Elijah. Matthew eleven fourteen. John is the Elijah who is to come. Now there's a farther fulfillment involving actual Elijah. That's another topic for another day. But my question is, what does all that have to do with John's choice of apparel and the fact that he's living in the wilderness and literally living off the land? The prophet Elijah was sent by God to the northern kingdom of Israel eight centuries earlier during a time of terrible turning away from the Lord. A time when the nation desperately needed to be called to repentance, to come back to the Lord. 2 Kings 1.8 describes Elijah. They said to him, I love the LSB in this, he was a hairy man. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle girded about his loins. I hate to disappoint anybody. It doesn't mean that he was personally hairy. It means that he wore garments that were hairy. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of camel's hair. He wore a leather belt. By the way, remember that at one time in Elijah's ministry, God kept him hidden in the wilderness, living off the land, ravens literally bringing food to him. So in every way possible, John the Baptist is showing that he is the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He is the one who would preach repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. But Matthew highlights another prophecy of the forerunner, really the prime connection of John the Baptist to the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. So back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 again, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The conjunction 4 here in in Matthew 3, verse 3, links John's ministry to this prophecy of Isaiah 40. This is the approving of John's ministry as the forerunner of Christ. The one spoken of in Isaiah 40 is John the Baptist. Now, a little point here that's important because there's a theological nuance to this. In verse 3, we need to put a quotation mark in the proper place. Most of your Bibles put the quotation mark beginning at make ready the way of the Lord. And so it would read, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight as the beginning of John's message. But the quotation mark should be earlier. It should be in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. It's not just that John is speaking in the wilderness. That's his message. His message is, 
in the wilderness, you men and you women of Israel, make ready the way of the Lord. Make straight His paths. Now this becomes very apparent when you hear the original prophecy in Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now listen, follow me here. The preparing the way of the Lord, the making straight the highway, had to do with the people hearing John the Baptist preaching that they were to prepare their own hearts for the coming of the King. They were to repent. They were to humble themselves prior to His arrival. The highways to be prepared are the highways of their souls in the wilderness. Now, why do we make such a nuanced point about where the quotation mark goes? Because in the wilderness is not just speaking of where John the Baptist was, it's a vital part of his message. Why is it in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight? The wilderness was stark. It was plain. There are no trappings, no religious significance. And in fact, John's own appearance represents this as well. And he's just, he's just plain. There's nothing to him. What is John doing here? He's, he's repudiating and rejecting any and all religious trimmings and accessories which could make anyone think that they're right with God. Or if I could put it this way, John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You won't find the kingdom of, of heaven in the temple. You won't find the kingdom in the religious ceremonies. You won't find the kingdom in all the trappings and the trimmings that have long fooled you into thinking that you're right with God because you do religious stuff and you do external things. No, this is clear. There's just the wilderness, the message of repentance, and a soon coming Savior. There's nothing else. There's the starkness of all religious confidence being taken away the soul stripped bare to reveal a wilderness of sin and a spiritual drought. John is not in the center of Jerusalem. He's not at the temple. He's abandoned all the official vestiges of Judaism which have become shallow and inane and hollow. No, he's in the wilderness. He's outside the official structure of Judaism which has failed. And he's dealing with only the soul. There's no religious frills for anyone to hide behind or anyone to claim. There's nothing you can say. That's the only way a person comes to faith in Christ, isn't it? Is in the wilderness. You bring nothing. You have nothing. There's no possible way to try to impress God. You come in, in nothingness with the bare open wound of repentance and a contrite heart before the Lord. By the way, when the religious elite tried to come make an impressive show of their religiosity and even come to the baptism that John was hosting, he excoriated them. In verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We would not put John the Baptist on our guest greeting team at Grace Bible Church. You don't come to Christ with anything but wilderness of the soul, sorrow, and repentance. That's the forerunner's approach, his announcement, his approval. Let's look at the forerunner's assignment. What was the forerunner's assignment? Verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. You want to talk about humbling yourself in repentance? This is, a, this is a gospel written first to the Jew. And a Jew reading what I just read to you, their jaw would hit the ground because this is humiliating to a Jew. After rejecting any notion that somehow God was going to be more favorably disposed towards you just because you happen to be a Jew descended from Abraham, after you reject that notion, you have to take it even a step further because John the Baptist was doing the unthinkable. Any Jew reading this would know that ceremonial washing was part of the process of a Gentile becoming a Jew, a Gentile joining God's holy nation. But John was requiring this ceremonial washing for Jews. 
Whether that implied it, unless there's an internal spiritual change, you're not part of the nation. That your, your heritage makes no difference. In fact, later on in the chapter, John uh, answers the, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees who brag that we have Abraham for our father. And what does John say? John says, God can raise up children from Abraham from rocks. That's not the issue. John was doing the unthinkable. He was making even the Jews start at ground zero, bringing nothing, not even their ethnic heritage to the table. They must come as Gentiles, as it were, as those outside of God's truly redeemed people. We've been asked sometimes why when we do baptisms do we have people read their testimonies. First of all, we know that was the practice of the early church. But we also take a cue from this scene here. What were the people who were being baptized doing? As they confessed their sins. End of verse 6. Confession of sin was part of this baptism. The unburdening of souls weighed down by sin and by the hopelessness of purely external religious actions. And listen, they're confessing their sins. This is shocking. You didn't do this. They're in the waters and before John would baptize them, they would say, I have done this and this and this. And this isn't some sort of Catholic confession where you think you're giving God's favor just by going through the act of confessing. This is actual true repentance. These are people humiliating themselves in front of hundreds and maybe thousands of people saying, I have lusted after this man's wife. I have stolen this. I have done this. I have done this. I have done that. He's calling people to turn from their sin And to do so in a way that is humiliating. That is the only way you come to Christ. You don't come with your head up in pride. You come with your face down confessing sin. He's calling people to turn from their sin in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And and the, the subject of John's baptism is quite a long topic. There isn't really a comparison to this. It's it's a unique instance. It's a unique baptism. It hasn't happened before and it's never happened since. A time of beseeching the Jews to prepare their hearts and humble themselves to meet their coming king. And John's assignment here, it was simultaneously an assignment of hope and of warning. What's the hope? The hope is Messiah King is coming. The kingdom is at hand. Kingdom citizenship is available to all who would repent. And what's the warning? Messiah King is coming. The kingdom is at hand. And kingdom citizenship will be withheld from any who will not repent. But I said at the beginning there are two forerunners. And to find out who the second forerunner is, we need to now go to the passage that Matthew cites in verse 3. So I want to have us turn to finish our time this morning to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And we find ourselves at one of the most dramatic and stunning section breaks of any book in the Bible. Isaiah 40. The primary concern in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah has been Assyria and the sin of Israel that's going to cause them to be judged. All of a sudden, we fast forward to a situation over a century later than chapter 39. Now the concern is not Assyria. Now the concern is Babylon. In the narrative story section, which transitions from the first part of Isaiah to the second part, chapters 36 through 39, we're focused on the Lord's dealing with Judah's king, Hezekiah. Overall, Hezekiah was a great king. But for the purposes of the reader, Isaiah has placed some events out of order chronologically so that the very last glimpse we get of the good king Hezekiah is his selfishness and his pride in the coming punishment. And so chapter 39 ends with this down, downer, depressing ending. The judgment is coming. And because of the same rebellious attitude in all of Judah and because of the sins of Hezekiah's coming son, Manasseh, God will send Babylon to judge his people. Now, between chapter 39 and chapter 40, there's about a half an inch of white space. But what happens in that white space is epic. Over the coming decades, Babylon would grow in strength until it finally crushed Assyria about 90 years after Isaiah wrote 
the Babylonian Empire began spreading. And when Nebuchadnezzar took the throne around 605 BC, Judah now fell into the boundaries of the new Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree to Judah that she would pay tribute to him. And part of this tribute was that Judah's king would serve Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar attacked and besieged Jerusalem. And to make sure that Judah knew who was in charge, Nebuchadnezzar demanded hostages from King Jehoiakim to prove his allegiance to Babylon. Judah rebelled again, and Babylon came again in 597 and attacked Jerusalem. Judah rebelled again, and they came again in 587, laying siege to Jerusalem that was so bad that that even cannibalism was happening within the walls. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, carried off those who weren't killed. And now Judah has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. Jews who aren't killed are now exiled to Babylon. And now, having been there for some time, Isaiah's prophetic writings in chapters 40 through 66 begin to suddenly take on incredible significance to them. Remember, written a century before all this happened. God's plan for Israel begins to take shape that no more will there be this divided king of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That's done. He's going to restore the nation. But even in the midst of offering hope for an immediate future, Isaiah masterfully and prophetically weaves into his prophecies the true and living hope of Israel, and that is her Messiah. Isaiah, writing prophetically to these exiled Israelites, he changes his tone from judgment and doom all through chapters 1 through 39. And all of a sudden, in chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. Isaiah's work of declaring judgment has now for the most part ended. And now God commissions him. Comfort, comfort my people, meaning console them, give relief to them, cheer them up. He says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. This is a, a way of saying speak tenderly, speak with love, speak with peace. Judah had declared war on God by virtue of turning away from him and by her covenant disobedience, but the war was over. God was declaring peace because her national sin was now forgiven and she had as a nation taken full punishment. God's justice has been fulfilled for his nation and now he's giving them exciting comfort. In the rest of chapter 40, he gives them reasons to have hope in their waiting. But here's what would be amazing. For the sixth century exiled Jew, these words bring comfort for their return from exile. Remember we said this about Malachi 4. Prophecies in the Old Testament often have layers to them. Here's the first layer. Verse 3. A voice is calling. Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And you can hear the hallelujah chorus in there, can't you? As much of what it's based upon. So for the 6th century Jew, these are fabulous words. A road will be prepared, a way home for this 800-mile journey from Babylon all the way back to Judah. Verse 4 speaks of smoothing the way for this road, filling in the potholes, digging down the hills, and so forth. And if you've been here on Sunday nights, we've seen this fulfilled. Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, fulfills this prophecy. And we've seen the phrase numbers of times through the book, the good hand of God upon those returning from Babylon at the decree of King Cyrus of Persia. They were going home. At least a bunch of them would. But Isaiah the prophet gives the exiled Jews more hope. Verse 6, a voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loving kindness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
And when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. At God's request, Isaiah makes a comparison. that people are like grass. It's green one day and brown the next. All God has to do is blow on it and it's gone. But he says that the word of our God will stand forever. The plans and purposes of Assyria seem too overwhelming. God knocked them out. Then came along Babylon. They seemed unstoppable. But then Persia came and wiped them out. And all along, this simply furthered God's promise to Israel that he would bring them home. But as we've already seen, this is not just about Israel going home from exile. There's a second layer. It's also about Israel during the first coming of Christ, preparing their hearts to receive their Messiah. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this voice crying out to prepare the way for Messiah, for God in the flesh. And how were they to prepare? How were they to get ready? John told Israel, repent. And the promise of verse 4, let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and so forth. Everything that would keep you from salvation will be removed. Every obstacle Freedom from the slavery of sin is offered to all who would receive Christ. And so Isaiah is addressing the exiles who would return home in the 6th and 5th centuries. That's the first layer. He's addressing the Jews in Jesus' day who would literally meet their Messiah. But there's a third layer and a second forerunner. Listen, the first layer of this prophecy is to the exiles. The second layer of this prophecy to the Jews in Jesus' day The third layer of this prophecy is to the Jews at the end of the Great Tribulation who are desperately awaiting the return of Messiah. In fact, look again at verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. This speaks of literal changes in the earth's topography during the Great Tribulation that every mountain will be brought low with the result that geographically the highest place on earth is going to be, guess where? Jerusalem. Now, if you don't believe Isaiah here, maybe you'll believe him in Isaiah 2, verse 2, that it will be in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills. If you don't believe Isaiah twice, will you believe Micah? Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Now it will be that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills. And if you don't believe Isaiah twice and Micah once, maybe you'll believe the Apostle John's account of the final horrific bold judgment of the Great Tribulation as recorded in Revelation 16, beginning in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came from the sanctuary from the throne came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying it is done and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth so great an earthquake and so mighty that every island fled away and the mountains were not found so third layer is a literal change in the earth and then isaiah 40 verse 5 then the glory of yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of yahweh is spoken all flesh will see the glory of god revealed this is exactly what jesus said would happen when he returns matthew 24 29 but immediately after the tribulation of those days The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 5. And now the Holy Spirit has affected the national salvation of Israel, Christ's coming. So the question is, who is the second forerunner? The second forerunner is the recently saved Jews of Jerusalem personified as the city itself. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, 
Raise up your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah. Now stop right there. I know you've already looked ahead. Pretend you haven't. What's the context right now? The context is that Christ is returning. The book of Daniel makes a clear case that Christ's return is not an instantaneous thing, but something that can be seen over time. Revelation 6 says it'll be seen long enough that people on the earth will dread it and they'll know that that's what's happening. That's the context. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Raise up your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Jerusalem is the second forerunner. Jews who just got saved, the nation of Israel now restored. There will be a day when in the midst of Antichrist reigning terror on the earth and believing Jews being persecuted and killed, Zion and Jerusalem will celebrate and shout, Behold your God. And how is God coming this time? Is He coming in a manger? Is He coming as a baby? Not this time. Verse 10, Behold, Lord Yahweh will come with strength, with His arm ruling for Him. And when Messiah returns, all Israelites who have bowed to Christ and been forgiven of their sins, and all Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, grafted into the branch of Israel as the church. Verse 11, Like a shepherd, He will shepherd his flock in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom he will gently lead the nursing ewes why is this possible why is your salvation possible i mentioned at the very very beginning of our time together that the actual greek word for forerunner is only used once in the new testament and it wasn't of john the baptist You needed someone holy who could enter into the very presence of God on your behalf through a perfect, unblemished blood sacrifice. Someone who could go before you. Someone who could die before you. Someone who could be raised from the dead before you. Someone who could appear before God before you. Someone who could pave the way to peace with God and the ability to be in His presence forever. And Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 tells us who this is forerunner is this is the hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and confirmed and one which enters within the veil where a forerunner has entered for us jesus 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 is the forerunner and in fact God gave hope to the exiled Jews that they could make it home in the 6th and 5th centuries A.D. and to Israel that they could receive spiritual life and that those who place their faith in Messiah as their forerunner will make it home to the kingdom of heaven. And that hope, of course, is found at the end of Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weary and to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though youths grow weary and tired and choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You will make it to the kingdom of heaven because your forerunner has already arrived there. Your forerunner is already there. And what did he say in John 14 that he's doing? He's preparing a place for you. That's what forerunners do. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious layers of truth these connections we find between Matthew 3, verse 3, and then Isaiah 40, and how your plan is so consistent, and you give a, a, a small picture during the return from exile of what you will do in grander fashion. And you give a small picture, even as Christ has come to offer the kingdom to the Jews who would ultimately re- reject him, 
but to show that in grander fashion you will turn their hearts to, to you. And in the meantime, during the church age, how grateful we are that you have saved countless millions of we who were outside of the nation of Israel, we who were rejected. You have saved us in the church, the Gentile believers, to the ends of the earth. And so we're, we're marveling, we're blown away at the fact that the birth of Jesus Christ on this earth was merely the beginning of the outworking of a plan that literally stretches into eternity. And we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for allowing us to be part of that plan through the cross of Christ, through his faithful death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven, by which he even now intercedes for us as our forerunner, having gone before us to make certain we arrive as well. Give us the faith based in this sure and certain word of God to know that for the Christian, our future is certain, for the forerunner has gone before. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.